Good afternoon. It occurred to me sitting here earlier that you may not know how the, the topics are picked. You may assume that, that Ryan invited us and said love for you to speak on uh, whatever topic you're most excited to talk about. Such is not the case. And I think I drew the two easiest topics of them all here. Talking about abortion and now talking about race. Remember in elementary school, we would have an assignment to give a speech before the class and the time length was four minutes long and, and panicking that I only have two minutes worth of material. How am I going to ever extend it out four minutes, a whole four minute speech? And now as I've thought about this topic, I think, how in the world am I going to cover race adequately in 45 minutes? We could spend 45 hours and feel like we're barely scratching the surface here. But my friend Trent Hunter gave me some good counsel and I think this is a good perspective for how to think about the expectations for this talk in particular. I hope that you'll walk away. This is sort of a secondary goal I would have for this session that we have together realizing that some aspects of the race conversation are more simple than you may have thought. And other aspects of this conversation perhaps are more complex than you originally thought. That's my secondary goal, that you would walk out of here perhaps thinking about that. My ultimate goal is that we would be equipped by God's grace to walk according to God's word in a faithful way, honoring the dignity of fellow image bearers in a way that is marked by love, in a way that is glorifying to the Lord. Now let me make a preliminary semi-apology or clarification regarding my focus for this talk. A lot of it is going to focus on the issues of white and black in America. And if you were to come up to me and say, you know, the race issue is bigger than just Caucasians and African Americans, I would readily grant the point. But if I try to cover everything, number one, I'm going to speak beyond my knowledge. This is the, the area I have thought the most about and read the most about. And secondly, I think it could just grow increasingly complex as we try to cram everything into one talk. So I'm going to focus on that particular angle, and there are a couple reasons why I chose that rather than the relationship between uh, Caucasians and Asian Americans, or the relationship between Native Americans and African Americans, or the relationships between uh, Mexicans and Americans, or between first-generation immigrants and second-generation immigrants, and that's because the white, black, issue is historically unique in the United States. And at a national level, even though this may not be as true in the Southwest, it is the most potent and most difficult conversation. So you should just know I'm a Caucasian guy coming to you, a lifelong Midwesterner. I've only lived in three states, Iowa, Minnesota, and now Illinois. I know I'm coming to the Southwest. 
and that this is a different context. And so I won't pretend to be able to speak into all your particular situations and questions. But again, I do think the white-black issue is worth camping on for a little bit. And perhaps it will help you understand just a little bit more. Certainly not going to solve anything in these few minutes that we have together. Uh, about some of the conversations and why they are uniquely difficult in the United States. I want to begin with a quote from Frederick Douglass, writing in his narrative in 1845. So that's 16 years before the Civil War began. Probably many of you know Frederick Douglass was a slave who escaped and Uh, not only learned to read, but learned to write in a profound and beautiful way. And he talks about the, the horrible contradiction between the cultural Christianity that he saw in the church and slavery, which he saw all around him. And again, in part, I'm setting this up of why I want to focus on the white-black question. Douglas wrote, I hate the corrupt slave-holding Women whipping, cradle plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of the land. I look upon it as the climax of all misnomers, the boldest of all frauds, and the grossest of all libels. Douglas himself was a a professing Christian, by the way. I am filled with unutterable loathing when I contemplate the religious pomp and show together with the horrible inconsistencies which everywhere surround me. We have men stealers for ministers, women whippers for missionaries, and cradle plunderers for church members. The man who wields the blood-clotted cow skin during the week fills the pulpit on Sunday and claims to be a minister of the meek and lowly Jesus. The slave auctioner's bell and the church-going bell chime in with each other. And the bitter cries of the heartbroken slave are drowned in the religious shouts of his pious master. Revivals of religion and revivals in the slave trade go hand in hand together. The slave prison and the church stand near each other. The clanking of fetters and the rattling of chains in the prison and the pious psalm and solemn prayer in the church may be heard at the same time. The dealers and the bodies of men erect their stand in the presence of the pulpit and they mutually help each other. The dealer gives his blood-stained gold to support the pulpit and the pulpit in return covers his infernal business with the garb of Christianity. Here we have religion and robbery, the allies of each other. Devils dressed in angels' robes and hell presenting the semblance of paradise. Now, for many of us, that seems very long ago, but that was in this land, in these United States. And I got to thinking this morning, Billy Graham, who's still alive, North Carolina, his grandfather was alive when Frederick Douglass wrote these words. In the course of human history, this was not very long ago. And turn to one more quote, this one from a mere 50 years ago. Many of you were alive At this time, it says 120 years after Frederick Douglass, a 34-year-old black man sat in a jail in Birmingham, Alabama, and wrote a letter to white clergy members, white pastors, who, 
ended up on the, the wrong side of history, but were actually civil rights supporters who believed in black dignity and wanted freedom against uh, the injustices of Jim Crow. But they wished that King and his uh, brothers would slow down, take a more, uh, a less radical approach. And King wrote a letter to these guys, an open letter, and I'll read just part of it. He said, perhaps it is easy, and again, this is 50 years ago, perhaps it's easy for those who've never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say, wait, but when you have seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at whim, when you have seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, and even kill your black brothers and sisters, when you see the vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society, when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she can't go to the public amusement park that has just been advertised on TV, and see tears welling up in her eyes when she's told that Fun Town is closed to colored children, and see ominous clouds of inferiority beginning to form in her little mental sky, and see her beginning to distort her personality by developing an unconscious bitterness toward white people. When you have to concoct an answer for a five-year-old son who's asking, Daddy, why do white people treat colored people so mean? When you take a cross-country drive and find it necessary to sleep night after night in the uncomfortable corners of your automobile because no motel will accept you. When you are humiliated day in and day out by nagging signs reading white and colored. When your first name becomes, and here he says the N-word, your middle name becomes boy, however old you are, and your last name becomes John, and your wife and mother are never given the respected title, Mrs., when you are harried by day and haunted by night by the fact that you are a Negro, living constantly at tiptoe stance, never quite knowing what to expect next and are plagued with inner fears and outer resentments. When you are forever fighting a degenerating sense of nobodiness, then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. There comes a time, King wrote, when the cup of endurance runs over and men are no longer willing to be plunged into the abyss of despair. I hope, sirs, you can understand our legitimate and unavoidable patience. There is something unique about the history of the United States when it comes to race and the residual effects of that that are still with us. Again, to qualify, I know it's a bigger, race is a bigger issue than this, but I think it's worth camping on for a few minutes, especially because uh, it is so rare for us to talk about in our circles. Well, rather than trying to describe various options, I want to paint a picture for you of two men We'll call them Al and Ben. I don't have the gift of creativity when it comes to names. <laughs> Al and Ben have a lot of similarities. They're exactly the same age, 60 years old. Both of them are married. Both of them have three children. Both of them have a couple of grandkids. In fact, both of them have the, the same job. They're teachers in a high school. Both hoping to take early retirement here in a couple of years. 
Both are Christians. Uh, both love Jesus. Uh, go to church regularly, read their Bibles, pray. But there are differences between these two men. Al is white and Ben is black. Al's a lifelong Midwesterner. He lives in Hinton, Iowa, a rural community, almost entirely white. Ben's never lived outside of the South. He lives in Macon, Georgia, where 67% of the city is African-American. Both men are pro-life. Both men believe that marriage is between one man and one woman, but Al usually votes for the Republican, while Ben often votes for the Democrat. For Al, there's really, honestly, not a lot of wrestling when he comes to pick a candidate. Uh, the Republican candidates tend to support his moral values. He's a social conservative, and he votes accordingly. If Ben could vote for a pro-life Democrat, that would probably be his ideal, but they don't seem to exist very much anymore. And as he listens to Republican candidates for office, it seems like they don't care about him very much. They aren't even trying to get his vote. They don't seem to speak about the things that he cares about, and so he is not eager to support them. Al's church-going experience has always been in white churches. It, it would be rare to see an African-American in church. He'd love to see more people of color come into the church. He thinks that would be a wonderful thing, but, but honestly, he doesn't lose any sleep over it. Uh, most of the time, he doesn't notice. He sometimes hears people lament that 11 o'clock on Sunday morning in America is the most segregated hour in our country, and he usually... Uh, responds with a, a wry smile, a little shake of his head. Now, he, he wouldn't say this publicly. He doesn't want people to think he's insensitive or at best or a racist at worst, but he just thinks people are most comfortable worshiping where they like to. He sees even in his, his white community the difference between the 60-year-olds and the 20-year-olds the and the sort of music that they they like. And he just figures, you know, hipsters like to go worship with hipsters, and Presbyterians don't like to worship with Pentecostals. We all have different styles. We kind of like to, to be with people in places where we are most comfortable. But again, he, if he'd been asked publicly, he'd probably say, yeah, that, that would be nice to, to have a little bit more diversity. Ben tends to think about church a little bit differently than most of the, the white folks that he knows. He's actually been to, to white churches before, and it was a, a bit of a surreal experience for him. I felt like he was going into a place where he was uncomfortable. He didn't know the, the cues. He didn't know the postures. Uh, the, the pastor seemed nice enough, but it seemed like, like one of those TED Talks on YouTube. <laughs> Every, everybody was nice, and they say they're led by the Spirit, but he noticed in the back of the room there was one of those digital clocks counting down, and he wonders, I wonder if they're led more by the clock than the Spirit. <laughs> Nobody wants to, to miss their football game or their, their lunch afterwards. There was no raising of hands. Nobody talked back to the pastor. The music just was before the sermon and after the sermon, but there was no Hammond B3 organ going in. When, when his pastor preaches, it's an event. 
He's got his white towel up on the pulpit. You know he's getting going when the sweat starts to come onto his brow. The people talk back to him. They encourage him. They tell him to keep preach, to go on, not to stop. It's a dialogical event. That's what it looks like when the spirit is moving. But when he was at the white church, I mean, it seemed like kind of a nice community lecture or something. Both of the men were teenagers when Martin Luther King Jr. was shot. But both of them are proud, in a sense, of of the civil rights movement. Uh, Al has a favorite quote from King. It's probably one familiar to most of us in this room. Where King said during his famous speech on the March on Washington, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And Al thinks, in his uh, most honest moments, I'm the embodiment of what King is talking about. I try, as best as I can, to be colorblind. I don't think a lot about race. I'm not going around talking about race Every day, when he sees a, a person of color on TV, he tries not to form judgment. Sometimes he does, but he tries to catch himself. He would never use a derogatory word to describe somebody of another race. He would never refuse to to break bread with them or to pray with them. He tries to love every person. He's trying to live out King's dream, a colorblind society where no one notices your race; they only notice the content of your character. And if Al's being honest, again, he would never say this out loud, maybe except to his wife, he he finds the black community a little bit perplexing. Why aren't they over it yet? It's not like people are still being lynched. Yeah, we do have some terrible things that happened in our history, but there's no segregated fountains or pools anymore. Why do they have to make race such a big deal? And if he's really being honest, he wonders deep down how black is beautiful or black lives matter fits with King's vision. I mean, Al's even thought before, can you imagine if I were to go out and tell my students at the high school that white is beautiful, white lives matter? These black folks always seem to get up in arms when something goes tragically wrong and a a white police officer shoots another black teenager who's behaving badly. When's the last time you saw a black demonstration or a, a hashtag on Twitter about Chicago, he wonders, where black on black violence takes lives every day? Why aren't they complaining about the fatherlessness problem in the black community. Al, he has trouble relating. When he hears that a white teenager has died, he feels bad, but it doesn't feel like a family member has died. The way he sees black people responding when a black teenager dies is just different, and he honestly doesn't get it. So Ben is a Martin Luther King fan too, but if he's being honest, He gets a little bit tired of the content of our character 
quote, not because he doesn't believe it, but when he hears white folks quote it, he feels like it's code for, we've already arrived, or why don't they get over it, or please stop talking about race. And ironically, one of Ben's favorite lines from the civil rights era is not from King, but from his sometime nemesis, Lyndon Johnson. A couple of months after King and others marched from Montgomery to Selma, Johnson gave an address, a commencement address at Howard University and said this, freedom is not enough. You don't wipe away the scars of centuries by saying, now you're free to go where you want and do as you desire and choose the leaders you please. You don't take a person who for years has been hobbled by chains and liberate him, bringing him up to the starting line of a race and say, you're free to compete with all the others and still justly believe that you've been completely fair. Thus, it's not enough just to open the gates of opportunity. All our citizens must have the ability to walk through those gates. This is the next and the more profound stage of the battle for civil rights, Johnson said. We seek not just freedom, but opportunity. We seek not just legal equity, but human ability. Not just equality as a right and a theory, but equality as a fact and equality as a result. And Ben listens to that and says, that's what we don't have. On no measure do we have equality as a result. We're still in this second phase of the civil rights era where most of the white people he perceives figure that it's long done and over with. And sometimes even if he's tempted towards optimism, he turns on the news or or checks into social media and sees that prominent politicians running for office are having difficulty immediately condemning the KKK and talking about how Mexicans are rapists coming into our country and he shuts it off with disgust. Perhaps the problem he thinks is even worse than he feels. And yes, he does see when another white officer has killed a black teenager and the reaction that he has as he views this online or he he sees the news come through is is something difficult for him to describe. It's a visceral reaction in his chest. It's a combination of of rage and of sorrow and of fear. He can see a younger version of his own teenage self sometimes in the pictures of those young boys. He he wonders What if it's his grandchildren in a few years who give someone a ride that they shouldn't give or begin acting foolishly or decide in fear to run rather than to stop or have mental health issues? And he wonders, is it just a matter of time before it's one of his family members? Because it does feel like a family member has been killed. And again, he goes on social media and he sees various folks saying that these are thugs. That what did you expect if you commit thuggish behavior? And everything in Ben wants to scream that that so-called thug had a mom. He had a future. He had a name, but he never had a chance. And Ben even starts to to use the hashtag on Twitter that that Black Lives Matters, only to find out later that a a Marxist pro-gay 
liberal group, co-ops the hashtag, creates their own organization, claims the right to that. And so then whenever he sees white folks talking about this, all they want to say is all lives matter or unborn lives matter. And Ben just wants to say, can you not even bring yourself to say the words that black lives matter? And he feels this, this rage and this panic and this sorrow. But he doesn't want to say too much. He fears that if he does, he'll just be playing to type and be dismissed as just another angry black man. Now, I recognize in even setting up that fictional scenario that these two profiles can be playing to their own stereotypes, as if all black people think that way, or all white people think like Al thinks, and that's not what I'm intending to do. But I'm wanting to show some of the complexity of these conversations, and I intentionally structured it so that we're talking about two people from the same country, two people who are both male, two people who love Jesus, two people who are of the same age, but two people who see things so very differently. Start to add in their other races, other religions, other parts of the country, and the complexity multiplies exponentially. So how shall we process something like this? How shall we respond? Well, I want to try to do two things. The first is to avoid the typical college ethics class or high school class approach to ethics, which is to paint the most complex picture and try to operate from there. I have built in some of the complexity, I think, of this conversation, but I think a more biblical way is to start from the ground up to lay some basic foundations, to set some beams, some structures, some, some walls, a roof, a structure in which we can move in. And we can talk about how to live together inside that structure in an understanding way secondarily. But let's first make sure that we have the structure set beneath us first. So some very, what I think are simple Points, but sometimes we go too quickly over the things that should be obvious and should be clear. So the first point is that we all came from the same place. The ground at creation is level. And we've hit on this now in this conference in multiple ways. Owen hit on the image of God in his talk. I hit on the image of God in my talk. But again, want to stress how important the image of God is to all of these various issues that we are talking about. All people, every person that you will ever meet, that you ever have met, is created in the image of God, designed to reflect his glory, designed to resemble his character, designed to represent his rule. And if you go back to the Genesis account, what does it say about their physical appearance? Their muscle mass, the way in which their hair is structured, the way in which their eyes were shaped, the way in which their nose and lips look, the color of their skin. It says nothing at all. Not because the Christian worldview doesn't care about the body, but because those differences that exist are morally irrelevant for how we treat one another. 
So we all came from the same place, created by God in his image for his glory. And the same thing went wrong for all of us. We all fell in sin. So every person you ever have met or ever will meet is created in the image of God. Every person you ever have met and ever will meet has fallen in Adam. Romans 3.10 says there is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all created in the image of God and we have all fallen in Adam. And one implication of this pillar of the Christian worldview is that racism at a certain level should not be surprising. Racism is illogical, it's inexcusable, indefensible, but it should not be surprising if we have a robust doctrine of sin. Ever since the first sin in the garden, which was an irrational act of ignoring a good authoritative creator and listening instead to a lying snake, we have been acting irrationally towards one another. So whether we're talking about racial dogma, which is teaching something about one race being superior to another, or whether we're talking about racial prejudice, which is different from teaching it, but forming judgments, whether we keep those internal or make those external, making judgments or having suspicions or harboring fears or hatred of someone else based upon their skin color or upon their other features, or whether we're talking about racial dominance, which is distinct from teaching and prejudice, where we treat members of a race unequally on the basis of their skin, or we're talking merely about residual racism, whereby we repudiate the racial dogma and the racial prejudice and the racial dominance, but we still harbor remaining sin. We've renounced it, but there are latent features still within us. All of this is evil. None of it existed before the fall. None of it will exist in the new heavens and the new earth but we are living in between. And that brings us to the third point, image of God, fall of man, and the third, the cross of Jesus Christ. It's the greatest news in all the world for sinners that a holy God in his infinite goodness and wisdom and power created a way for his sinful image bears to be reconciled to himself through his son who absorbed his holy wrath for those who would trust him and believe and repent. If we tried to atone for our own racial dogmas and prejudices and attempts to have power over others, we would be lost forever. Our only hope is the cross of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And if you are a believer this morning, this afternoon, if you have been saved, you have the power within you to overcome this sin and to be forgiven for every word and thought that you have ever uttered that would denigrate someone else. And one of the great teachings of the New Testament is that this vertical reconciliation that we experience has horizontal implications. 
appreciated Ryan reading from Ephesians chapter 2 that talks about the dividing wall of hostility between Gentiles and Jews being torn down so that God might reconcile us in one body through the cross, killing the hostility. So that means in the church, we don't try to create unity out of nothing. We have unity through the cross in the gospel, and we need to act in accordance with the unity that God created. But this cross-shaped perspective influences and, and determines how we should treat one another. Romans 15, 7 says that we are to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So if you have been welcomed by Christ, you should have a welcoming, hospitable spirit as a result. James 2, verses 1 and 9, my brother, show no partiality. If you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Christ was gracious to you. He was free to you. How can you go and respond to a gracious, welcoming, loving, reconciling God by not wanting to reconcile, being partial instead, treating others differently? The Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, 10 Jesus tells us to forgive as we ourselves have been forgiven. So if you find in yourself a spirit that is slow to forgive, it's probably because you do not meditate enough on the fact that you have been forgiven. Fifth point, we need to not only know how, were we, how we were created in the image of God and how we fell and what the cross achieved and the implications of the cross, but we need to meditate upon where we are going. After the fall of Noah, kind of a second fall, in Genesis 10 we see God scattering the family of Noah into separate tribes and family groups and languages and territories and nations. But when you turn to the end of your Bible, you see the reconciliation of all things and you see the most beautiful diverse worship service in all the world. Revelation 5, 9 through 10, singing praise to Jesus, they sing, you were slain, Jesus, and by your blood you ransomed people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You've made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Two chapters later, Revelation 7, 9 and 10 pictures this worship service. I looked, John says, and behold, a great multitude that no one can number from every nation. That's not referring, by the way, to the 200 or so nation states. It's referring to every sociolinguistic people group, which some number into 15 to 17,000. A great multitude no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the Lamb, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And if that doesn't excite you, if you don't look forward to that worship service, then something is wrong with both your theology and your heart. We should pray that the Lord would hasten that day when we can worship with every tribe and tongue and people, and nation. So are there any practical things that we can do as a result? I am under no illusions that we can solve these issues. I don't think these are easy 
conversations. And again, I, I've said multiple times, but I'll say it again. I recognize that it's even more complex when you add in all sorts of other peoples and nations and, and regions of, of the country. But here are a few bits of counsel that I think can help point us at least in the right direction. Number one, be slow to speak and quick to listen. This comes from the book of James, chapter one, verse 19. James says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And I confess that there is a little bit of me in my fictional character, Al, that I would prefer to live in a colorblind society. I would prefer not to talk about race. Um, But I need to recognize that not everyone shares that perspective and certainly those who are in minority groups. I have a lot of thoughts on race. I've read a few books. And so the temptation to enter into any conversation is to think, I have a lot to offer here. I would like to share my perspective. I would like to convince you that I'm right. And I think that I should have that ability in a a relationship that's marked by dialogue. But I first need to learn how to listen. How many times have you begun responding to something not knowing what the exact question was. So let's talk to people, hear them out, draw them out, and work against our natural inclination, which is to be quick to speak and slow to listen. Secondly, we should ask the Lord to search our heart to reveal our motives and to show us our blind spots. The very nature of a blind spot is that you can't see it, right? You need somebody to point it out to you. And we can begin by asking the Lord to search me, try me, reveal my heart. A sad experience for me uh, was riding on the bus in downtown Minneapolis, where my wife and I lived in Minneapolis, uh, South Minneapolis. The Phillips neighborhood is, is the most diverse uh, neighborhood in the United States. And a work downtown, which is just a half mile or so north of South Minneapolis. And it, this was after 9-11. My memory says it was maybe a week later and I was riding the bus from our building downtown where I worked to Bethlehem Baptist Church parking lot. And a Middle Eastern looking man was on the bus sitting across from me. And I don't know if you've ever experienced this where you start to catch somebody's eye and then it happens more than once. And I mean, it's just kind of this weird thing of you, you don't know if you're regnant, but you just keep catching somebody's eye. And it just happened with this guy. And I don't consciously remember thinking any negative thoughts about him making any assumptions. But as he got off the bus, he just looked at me after we'd kind of done this awkward catching each other's eye, and he just said, you know, just because I'm Arab doesn't mean I'm a terrorist. And I felt, I, I almost was so stunned I couldn't say anything, and he, he hustled off the bus. Now, was I being racist or prejudicial in catching his eye? I don't think so. 
But I think that's an example where we just need to ask the Lord, Lord, would you just reveal even subconscious prejudices that I might have, unholy thoughts that I'm not even consciously aware of? We have to recognize, I think, especially with this issue, that we inevitably, invariably give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. We always assume that we are operating from the best motives. Very few people want to walk around and say, I have terrible racial attitudes. (laughs) I've got blind spots like you wouldn't believe. We all want to profess our moral innocence on this issue. So we can begin, I think, by just asking the Lord, would you reveal the nature of my heart? Do not underestimate the power of self-deception and self-rationalization. Number three, if you're in the majority culture, recognize that you have certain privileges. And I'll just reveal up front, some of you may disagree with this, I don't particularly like the phrase white privilege. I think it's confusing. I don't always know what it means, so I don't always know how to respond. And it sometimes feels like a club that can just beat people up that just because of the color of white skin that you are thereby guilty of something. But it is an important point to recognize that there is a certain sort of, what word shall we use, luxury, perhaps we could say privilege, of not thinking about race or ethnicity. John Piper said, when you are the majority ethnicity, nothing you do is ethnic. It's just the way it's done. When you are a minority, everything you do has color. And I recognize this about myself in high school. I went to a high school, uh, I don't know what the percentage would be. I'd say maybe, maybe it was Uh, 50% Caucasian, 25% Hispanic, 25% African American. Those aren't scientific numbers. Um, But as I would look at the, the black students who were goofing off or who were getting in trouble, I would categorize that behavior according to their race. Oh, the black guys are doing this. And it dawned on me one day, you know, there's a lot of white guys goofing off too. There's a lot of white guys smoking pot, but I don't think of them, I tend to think of them in subgroups, but I don't categorize them according to their race as I do with African-American students. So just recognize in the majority culture, there is a luxury, there is a, a privilege of being able to go through life and not to think very much about race. And that is something that those in the minority cultures often are not able to do. Fourth, work on developing honest friendships. I don't think we're going to make progress only by reading books, only by going to seminars. We need to develop relationships with those who are different from us. That gives us an opportunity to listen, to learn. If we don't, we will have Good ideas, perhaps, but they won't be marked by love. We need to take a risk. We need to invite people over. We need to have hard conversations. Fifth, if you get serious about this issue, recognize 
that it's not going to be easy and you're going to get hurt. Let me quote from Piper again in a book that I would recommend on this issue called Bloodlines. Piper, who has uh, preached every year until his uh, retirement from the pulpit on racial issues on Martin Luther King's Sunday, said this after decades of preaching on it. Of all the moral issues that challenge the church from decade to decade, this one we are tempted to abandon more often because in this battle we get more quickly and deeply wounded along the way. If you have thin skin or if you have a bigger sense of rights you are owed than mercies you need or if you have small faith in God's preserving grace, you will set out on the road of racial harmony and then quit because you're going to be criticized. You will try to say something or do something you thought was helpful and the first thing you hear is you said it wrong or you should have said it a long time ago or you should have also said such and such or it was not the time to say anything. Will we stay at the table, Piper asks. Will we stay on the road? Getting up when you are knocked down is a mark of Christ's followers. We can work at this till we drop for our labor is not our labor is not in vain in the Lord. And finally, I think we should simply resolve that we are going to show the church, show the world that the church has a better way. That the church is not only part of the problem as it has been historically, but is part of the solution. We have within us, brothers and sisters, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that should affect how we love one another. So let me end with this quote from Francis Schaeffer, and then I'll pray and we'll be done. Schaeffer said, Before a watching world, an observable love in the midst of difference will show a difference between Christians' differences and other people's differences. The world may not understand what the Christians are disagreeing about, but they will very quickly understand the difference of our differences from the world's differences if they see us having our differences in an open and observable love on a practical level. It's in the midst of a difference that we have our golden opportunity. When everything's going well and we're all standing around in a nice little circle, there's not much to be seen by the world. But when we come to the place where there is a real difference and we exhibit uncompromised principles but at the same time observable love, then there is something that the world can see, something they can use to judge that these really are Christians and that Jesus has indeed been sent by the Father. Let's pray. Lord, we recognize that you could have created just one type of people, one skin color, one type of hair, one set of features, but it was part of your beautiful design that you created a diversity of peoples, people that look differently. And we pray, Lord, that you would enable each of us in this room to repent where we have not lived 
in accord with your design, where we have looked down upon others based upon how they look, where we have made unwarranted assumptions based upon external appearances. We pray, Lord, that one of the effects of this conference would not just be filling our head with new ideas, but with a deeper love for your son, Jesus, who came to ransom people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Lord, we pray that we would be deeply marked by love. And I pray for the brothers and sisters in this room, confessing that I don't know all of the the various ethnic dynamics in their communities and in their churches, but I pray that you would help them move forward in such a way that you would be glorified, the cross would be lifted up, and your people would be dignified. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.